The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we always need to make sure that we are prepared to study God's word. Scripture teaches us that it is only through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are able to fully understand, comprehend, assimilate, and eventually apply the Word of God so that it has value for our spiritual growth. This ministry is part of his ministry called the filling of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we sin, the Bible says that we grieve or quench the Spirit. But God in his grace has provided a recovery means for us so that when we confess, our sins, and that means to simply name or admit our sins privately to God the Father, that when we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason for that is because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross. God the Father in eternity past knew every single sin that we would ever commit. Therefore, we may surprise ourselves or shock our friends or appall our family by some of the sins that we commit. But they do not surprise, shock, or appall God because in his omniscience he knew about them from eternity past and made a complete and sufficient provision for them at the cross. So the issue of confession is a matter of privacy, part of the believer's priesthood between each individual believer and God the Father. And so before we begin our study, we always make sure that we are in right relationship with God, filled with the Spirit, in fellowship with him so that we can uh, assimilate the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we begin with... Just a few moments of a silent prayer before we open in prayer each time we study the Word. So let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that in this church age we have the unique privilege of not only being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but also being filled by him. That he is the one who illuminates our thinking to the principles and truths of doctrine in your word, that we might assimilate them into our spiritual life. They might be beneficial for our spiritual growth and edify, strengthen, and fortify our souls. Father, now as we open your word, which is alive and powerful, your word, which is inerrant, infallible, and your word, which is the source of all truth, and by which we are sanctified, that is, our spiritual life is matured. 
We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study and see how they relate to our own lives, that we might be challenged to continue to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and we will continue our study of the book of Judges. Now, this is a fascinating book to go through, especially in terms of our own generation. The theme of the book of Judges is stated twice, and that is that there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, both of those statements are pregnant with meaning. The first statement, there was no king in the land, is a double entendre. What that means is that there's a double sense or double meaning to that. And what we'll find is that this writer is filled with double meanings and double entendres. In fact, we're going to see several of them and several puns or paranomasia. Paranomasia is the technical word for a word play or pun. We're going to see a number of them in the Hebrew in the passage we're looking at this morning. In fact... The writer is poking fun at the whole scene that takes place in this second cycle in Judges. He has, uh, remember, this is important now, some of you are going to be so shocked by some of the things that are said here, and you're just going to vibrate a little bit because it's not necessarily the the highest level of uh, humor or subject matter at times. It is a little bit coarse, but it is, remember, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So you're just going to have to relax and have fun with it because there is a lot of humor in the text and some people get a little uptight when they start getting into some of this subject matter and uh, they just can't relax and, and have a little fun with this. So just remember this is God, the Holy Spirit, point, pointing his finger and making fun here and it just runs completely contrary to the whole political correctness mentality of today. I mean, if you're buying into political correctness and and the whole modern scenario of, of uh, postmodernism, multicultural diversity, then the Word of God is really going to uh, pull your chain this morning, so you might just get prepared for it mentally. Judges chapter 3. The point is, in the book, is that they have rejected the kingship of God. I was talking about double meanings. The fact that there was no king in the land was a, was, had a double meaning. First, there was no literal physical king like all the other nations had, which indicated there was a level of freedom in Israel during the period of the judges under the theocracy that was unknown to any other nation on the planet. But because of their rejection of doctrine, because they failed to obey the precepts of the Mosaic Law, and because of their negative volition to God, they were continually forgetting God, abandoning God, and turning to the false idol worship of the Canaanites around them. Because they fail to appreciate doctrine, because they fail to assimilate doctrine and make that uh, the strength of their soul, God was continually disciplining them according to the pattern of the Mosaic Law, and he was selling them into slavery to various foreign powers. And they were being overwhelmed, not unlike the scenario you see even in Israel today. Uh, By the end of that period, they had been in carnality so much that finally God disciplined them in a way with giving them a king like all the other nations saw and warned them that as a result of having a king like all the other nations, there would be an increased taxation, there would be a bureaucracy, and they would lose a measure of freedom that they had had under the theocracy. But rejection of doctrine destroyed their capacity for freedom, their ability to live responsibly based on the first divine institution of human responsibility, 
And the result was that they continually collapsed internally as a society and as a culture. They didn't have a physical king, and they had rejected God, the theocratic king, as the true king of the nation. So by rejecting God as the ultimate authority in the land and the ultimate determiner of absolutes and of values, uh, God, uh, I mean, they, they were in, by rejecting him, they were in complete uh, relativism, and they were doing whatever they thought was right. And you see this not only with the people, which we'll come to towards the end of the book, but also in the... Um, it's evidenced among the leadership. So before we get into this second cycle, we need to review the structure of the book just to orient ourselves to what is taking place and going on. Last time we finished the first cycle, which is the judgeship of Othniel. And Othniel is sort of presented as the perfect paradigm of leadership in the nation. Nothing negative is said about Othniel. Everything we learn about Othniel is very positive. He trusts the Lord. He is... Um, the Holy Spirit comes upon him to give him military victory, and we there recognize the principle that freedom only comes through military victory. And as a result of that, in Judges 3.11, we have the conclusion to that first cycle that the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Well, apparently, during the end of, that, of his judgeship, the end of those 40 years, the nation was going negative to God again, and they were deteriorating into... Uh, disobedience. And so we have the um, continuous cycle in this section of the book. Now, if you look at the overall structure of Judges, it has three sections. The first section from 1-1 to 3-6 is the introduction and this gives us the various cycles of deliverance that will take place in the book. There is a cycle of disobedience, then discipline, and then deliverance by a judge. And the word for judge, Shaphatim, means deliverer, not just judge in the sense of a, of a judicial figure like we have today, but also had a military capacity, and he was a, I guess a good translation would be that of deliverer. So it sets the tone in 1-1 through 3-6 that the nation continuously disobeys God. They have compromised with the nations in the land, and instead of annihilating the Canaanites... They have allowed them to continue to live. Now, that is analogous to the believer in the church age who compromises with the sin nature and continues to let the sin nature operate in certain areas of his life without applying Bible doctrine in the direction of the sin nature to bring it under control. Remember, Paul makes the mandate in Romans chapter 6 that we are to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. Failure to deal with the sin nature inside, they were... They lost the capacity for freedom because they were first enslaved to the sin nature and that prepared them for slavery to external enemies. It's important to remember that of the, enemy, the internal enemies that are mentioned back in the first part of chapter 3 that God allows to survive in order to test Israel, the internal enemies are not the external oppressors in the remainder of the book. So you have this cycle going on of disobedience, uh, discipline, and deliverance. And in this main section of the book, what God is doing is indicting the leadership of the nation. That the leadership has failed to fully, completely, exhaustively trust God using the faith rest drill. And that they too have assimilated the, pra the, the, the practices and the thinking of the Canaanites in the culture. See, they, have, they are living now with these Canaanite 
groups, the Amorites and the, uh, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, all represent sort of a homogenous culture in the land. Because they are intermarrying with them, they're compromising with them, the result is that their own thinking is being torn away from exclusive obedience to God. This is affecting the entire culture, and so the theme of Judges is how a people, how a culture, how a nation becomes paganized. And I use that word in, a, in its technical sense, which means to live and operate in a manner of thinking that is 180 degrees opposite the Word of God. It is operating on human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint, operating on cosmic thinking instead of, of Bible doctrine, operating on the thought forms of the culture around us, which in uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, is defined as soulish, earthly, and demonic. Human viewpoint, cosmic thinking are all tantamount to thinking like Satan thinks, operating on arrogance and antagonism to God, which are the twin poles of cosmic thinking. So in 3.7 to 16.31, we see how the leadership breaks down because they too have assimilated pagan thinking into their soul. And then in 17 through 21 in the appendices of four chapters, we see the breakdown of the people. Now, there are various cycles through the judges, and we'll see this again and again, going from disobedience to discipline to deliverance, and then they go right back to disobedience again. And this is where we are in verse 12. We see that the sons of, Eve, the sons of Israel are moving from deliverance to disobedience. So we move from our first cycle, which is Othniel, to our second cycle, our second major judge, Ehud. And there are uh, six more judges, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, plus a few minor judges. Now let's look at verse 12, 12a. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is a very short statement of Israel's problem. Again and again we see in this these cycles, that the author doesn't major on the problem. He's already outlined that in the first three chapters, down through 3.6. So he just goes back to that theme, reminding us of what they have done. Now, when it says that they did evil, evil is defined in the Old Testament in this kind of context specifically as idolatry. It is a violation of the first two commandments of the Mosaic Law of the Ten Commandments. Now, when God gave the Mosaic Law to Israel, and we have studied this, and I don't have time, and I don't want to get distracted by going through all the details again, that he gave it according to the form, the covenant treaty form, known as a suzerain-vassal treaty form, which was a very common and typical treaty form utilized in the ancient world at that time. We have uh, copies of that that have been discovered in archaeology from the Hittites, and it is a treaty that is given from a great king to a, an inferior power that is a satellite nation or is a um, uh, subservient power that is on the fringe of the great king's empire. And the great king enters into a contract with this uh, smaller power, this satellite nation, and says, um, if, you, will, if uh, you are obedient to me and you follow all the precepts of the contract, then I will bless you in certain ways and I will give you financial blessing and I will prosper you. But if you disobey, then these are going to be the results. So there's always a blessing and a cursing uh, addendum to the contract. And that's what we have in the blessing and cursing motif of Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So the sons of Israel do evil, and this is in relationship to the contract. And the contract is 
is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which is the basis for the, all of the freedoms for the nation Israel and the basis for their law. It's like the preamble to, to our Constitution. It just gives a summary of everything in the, in the Ten Commandments. Now, when it states that sons of Israel again did evil, this isn't talking about immorality. This isn't talking about criminality. It's not talking about the fact that they're engaged in sexual sins, although they are because of their involvement with the phallic cult and the fertility religions of, of Baal worship and, and the Asherah. But it's specifically talking about the fact that they are involved in idolatry. They have forgotten or abandoned God and exchanged the worship of God for the worship of the creator or the worship of the creature and the worship of idols. Now, again, evil is defined in terms of an absolute in this passage. Every time we see this in Judges, the writer is going to emphasize that it's evil in the sight of the Lord. There is a, an absolute standard in the universe, and that is the character of God, His absolute righteousness. And so God establishes the standard that right and wrong is not determined by what is culturally acceptable, what the... Uh, uh, majority in the society think is right and wrong. Evil is defined in terms of God's revelation and God's character. That is the uh, moral absolute. As long as Israel was positive to God and applying doctrine in the soul and applying the uh, and fulfilling the mandates of the Mosaic law, there was political freedom in the land, and they were not under bondage to an external power. But what we see here again and again is as soon as as uh, things get going a little well for Israel, they abandon God, just like many believers do today. As soon as life gets good, they forget doctrine. See, so, yeah, you see this over and over again, where people go through problems in their life, they go through trauma in their life, and they say, well, I've got to get back to doctrine, because I know when I was uh, obeying doctrine, when I was learning doctrine, applying doctrine, things were going pretty well. So as soon as they get back, they go to church for a while, five months, six months, they, life starts to level out. They start making some good decisions. They get out of the hole. And then the next thing you know, you don't see them anymore because everything has smoothed out and leveled out for them. So this is what happens with Israel again and again. They do cry out to God, which is tantamount to confession in the New Testament. They confess their sin. They cry out. Judges 10.10 10 says they admit that they're in idolatry. But it's temporary. It's like the baby believer who confesses his sin, but ten minutes later he's doing it again. He's not understanding that the point of confession is not simply to get forgiveness, but to stay in fellowship by not sinning. It is not that he is to use First uh, John 1, 9 as a license to sin, but as a grace recovery procedure so they can stay in fellowship. Because the point is to stay in fellowship and grow, not simply to get forgiven for your sins over and over again. Unfortunately, the way that most of us operate as babies is that once we... Uh, as Christ is Savior and we're entered into eternal relationship with Him, where we have, uh, we are in Christ, and we have an eternal relationship with Him that can never be broken, never be taken away from us, we also enter into a different relationship in terms of time, in terms of our day-to-day -day relationship. And what happens with a lot of Christians is the first time they hear about 1 John 1, 9, that... Um, uh, for example, when you trust Christ, you go into the bottom circle here, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're in fellowship with God. But as soon as you sin, you are out of fellowship in carnality. And you're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. And so you understand that, oh, Jesus Christ paid the price for all my sins, so all I have to do is confess them, First John 1, 9, I'm back in fellowship. 
and then two seconds later they're sinning again. And even while they're thinking about confessing their sin, they're planning their next, their next, uh, their next sin. And so it becomes kind of a vicious cycle, and that's all they ever get is from one second to the next. They're bouncing back and forth, in and out of fellowship, in and out of uh, carnality, and they don't go anywhere. And this is pretty much what happens in Israel. They, they just stay in fellowship and positive to God for a very short time. There is no real deep uh, change of mind. That's what repentance really means. Metanoeo means a deep change of mind. And, and really following doctrine. And so they go through this continuous cycle of decline all through the period of the judges. So they, uh, they violate this, and they, even though they have uh, cried out to the Lord, they don't stick with doctrine. And as soon as uh, they get a little prosperity, off they go into carnality again. Now the result is that God is going to discipline them. The second part of the verse reads, So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. This specifically states that the reason for God's action is their violation of the mandates in the Mosaic Law. The word for strengthen is in the Hebrew, the P-A-L, consecutive imperfect of the verb chazak, which means to strengthen, to give courage, and to provide military strength. Now, the interesting thing here is the picture we're going to get of Eglon, the king of Moab, is that he really needs a little additional help in order to get courage. And so it is only because of God's strengthening that has allowed Eglon to gain uh, military victory over the Israelites at this particular time. We need to note that the uh, verb here, chazak, is a active verb, and the subject is God. God is the one who is strengthening uh, Eglon. God is the one who is in charge of human history, and God is the one who moves the national pieces on the international chessboard in terms of raising up nations and destroying nations in relationship to his plan of human history. So we need to realize that God uses other nations, even evil nations like Moab, in order to discipline uh, his covenant nation, Israel. Now, Moab is located, if you look on the map on the overhead, is located in what is called the Transjordan area of Israel. It is on the east side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea to the southeast of the main portion of Israel. And it is in the area of, or near the area that was given to, to Reuben, designated as tribal land for Reuben. So in order for Eglon and, and the Moabites to have gained victory and establish a stronghold, as we shall see in Jericho, which is located just inside the um, uh, west bank of Israel, just inside the western bank from the Jordan River, that in order for them to have uh, uh, gained victory there, they had to have already taken control of, defeated Reuben and Gad, and gained control of the Transjordan area, before they invade into Israel proper after crossing the, um, the Jordan River. Now what we see in this verse is that this king is called Eglon. Now I don't know whether this is his proper name or not. Just as last time with Othniel, we saw that, that uh, the, the oppressor was Cushan Rishathaim, which was more of an epithet rather than a proper name. Cushan indicated his area of origination, which was in Midian, and Rishathaim is a Hebrew word meaning double evil or doubly wicked. So uh, 
it seems more of a nickname. Well, Eglon might have been a nickname as well. And it has certain uh, connotations. It's, 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 this whole section starts turning on these puns that begin with the name of Eglon. For example, Eglon is a paronymasia on the Hebrew word Egel. You can see that the consonants are the same. If you look on the, on the overhead, you can see these three letters. This is an ayin, a gimel, and a lamed, and it's very it's the same consonants that you have down here. Remember, Hebrew is a consonantal language, as most Semitic language are, languages are, Akkadian, Ugaritic, uh, Arabic, are, are, don't have vowel points. The vowels were added later. So when you do a comparison of, of different words in terms of their, their consonant roots, you can see that there are certain, certain similarities. Well, Egel, Eglon, is the diminutive. The O-N indicates something small, like you would say Tom or Tommy, uh, Bob or Bobby, Bill or Billy. The Eglon is a diminutive uh, suffix, and it's a paranomasia on the word Egel, which means a bull or a calf. This is specifically in reference to a fatted calf used for a sacrifice. And it is talking about, some, some also, it's related to the uh, adjective agal, which means round or rotund. If we were to take eglon and, and bring this pun over into English, it would be a word that would instantly bring to mind the, uh, the term fatty. Now, that's not politically correct. Y'all can laugh. The Jews are poking fun at this guy. He is obese. If you look down in verse uh, seven, seven, uh, excuse me, verse um, seventeen, we read, "And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab." Now, Eglon was, and we need to expand the translation a little bit. It is not simply a very fat man. He is an exceedingly fat man. The term is uh, bari maod in the Greek. It is the uh, adverb ma'od, which means exceedingly or greatly or to, to the extreme, plus the noun bari, which is also a term used to describe the fatted calf brought to the altar for sacrifice. So what's happening in, the, in a Jewish culture, you're sitting around, you'd, you'd be telling these stories, and they're talking about fatty. Remember when fatty, the king of Moab, defeated us. And so there's all of this pejorative, uh, insulting terminology here as they're poking fun at their enemy. And all of the words that are used here are bringing to mind just how obese this guy was. We're going to see that he's so fat that when uh, Ehud uh, assassinates him and drives his uh, homemade dagger into Ehud's belly, it goes. the guy's so fat that it just swallows the, the uh, dagger whole and he just loses it in his stomach. I mean, this is a very graphic, and some of you are going to uh, get a little queasy at times, but remember, this is the Word of God, and the writer is just having a lot of fun with this. This guy is an exceedingly fat man. Now, now what's interesting here is the double meanings of some of these words. The word here for bari and the fatness here is also combined with the word for keliv uh, in uh, this uh, verse where he jabs the uh, dagger up into him in verse 22 and says the fat closed over the blade, the word is kelev, which is also used to describe the fat of sacrificial animals. The subtext here is that, that Eglon is being viewed as a fat, obese, dull-witted, sacrificial animal that God is uh, taking out of the picture. 
And you also have references, for example, in Psalm 119.70 and in Psalm 73.7 that this relates to stupidity, that it's not simply fat of body, but fat of heart, fat of mind. That's the phrase that's used, and it is an idiom for being obtuse and stupid. And it's clearly played out in this scenario because Eglon is the king, lets this enemy agent come into his throne room and he sends all of his guards and everybody else out so he's got this private audience with an enemy. Well, how stupid can you get? There's no protection there. And so the writer, the the Jewish writer of, of Judges is pointing out how stupid and obtuse and imbecilic and inept Eglon, the king of Moab, is. And he's just poking fun at them. But it's not for the sake of simply poking fun at Eglon, because there's a stronger message underneath that. If this fat, stupid, obtuse man who can't even protect himself ruled over us, then how stupid, fat, and spiritually obtuse are we? And this is exactly what happens when we get into reversionism. Now, let's just briefly review the doctrine of reversionism. There are eight stages of reversionism. In the spiritual life, we are mandated to grow by means of uh, grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, it's not you don't grow by prayer, you don't grow by uh, memorizing Scripture, although Scripture is used in growth. You're, you don't grow by getting involved in programs or, or singing praise psalms. You grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So once we are trust Christ, we get... We're filled with the Spirit, and as long as we continue to take care of sins through 1 John 1, 9 and advance spiritually, we will grow, as long as we're learning doctrine and applying doctrine. But at some point, people go negative. They reject doctrine, and they begin to reverse themselves in their spiritual growth. That is the meaning of reversionism, to go into spiritual reverse and spiritual decline. It happens with individuals, and if you get a large number of individuals in a nation involved in personal reversionism, then the national entity goes into reversionism. And that's the exact picture we see with the uh, Israelites at this stage. First stage of reversionism is reaction and distraction. Something happens in your life and suddenly you're too busy to go to Bible class. You're too busy to get involved in uh, uh, listening to tapes every day. You're too busy to, to focus on your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ So you're distracted, or you react. You get mad at the pastor. The pastor says something you don't like, or somebody at church does something that you don't like, so you leave church, and you say they don't know what they're talking about, and you start reacting to doctrine, and and you say doctrine really doesn't work, and come up with all kinds of excuses to in order to make yourself look good. You start with reaction and distraction, and then, because you're no longer focused on God as a source of happiness, your life starts to fall apart, and you start looking for happiness in the details of life. You look for happiness in success or in money, in materialism, gain, in friendship, social life, sex, whatever it might be. You get involved in the frantic search for happiness. This leads to soul poverty based on the passage in Proverbs that God answered their prayers, but the, that is the prayers of the Jews in the wilderness, but he sent leanness to their souls. And that's what happens. All of a sudden you realize that there's a vacuum inside your, your soul and you constantly try to fill that up. So we look at it through emotion. This is what's happening in our nation as a whole. We're operating on emotional revolt. I've noticed in just the last few months that whenever I watch one of those morning uh, 
new shows, I put the word news in, in uh, quotation marks, or just about any of them, that you watch the women, and one or two specifically, I won't mention their names, but if you watch the women news, news, news people who are in conducting their, in, their interviews, they're constantly ask, asking such probing questions as, well, how did that make you feel? Well, just, just how hard was that? And there are all these emotional questions, and they don't ask any issue-oriented questions, any content or policy questions. It's more based on feeling, and it just shows that, that the whole orientation of our culture is on emotion. You just hear it again and again in everyday language. Listen to yourself. How many times do you ask somebody, well, how do you feel about that? I really don't care what anybody feels about anything. What do you think about it? Let's engage our minds and quit engaging our emotions. Emotional revolt of the soul leads to an ingrained negative volition. An ingrained negative volition where instead of, uh, where it becomes more and more difficult to turn around and get positive because we've surrounded ourselves with unbelievers, we've surrounded ourselves with friends and put ourselves in circumstances and situations and we are going through divine discipline. It just becomes more and more circumstantially difficult to, to uh, turn around and go to Bible class and, and to exercise positive volition. This leads to blackout in the soul where we are totally, uh, re- we've rejected doctrine and our souls are getting darker and darker because of the absence of truth, which is light. And that leads to scar tissue on the soul. We become hardened towards God, ultimately to full-blown cosmic degeneracy, which is where Israel is at this point because they've assimilated so much of the pagan thought of the Canaanites around them that their lives and their thinking is virtually indistinguishable from the thinking of the, the unbelievers around them. And that's exactly where Israel is, and frankly, I think that's where our nation is today. We have so caught up with um, uh, the pagan thought forms of our day that most Christians are thinking so much in terms of cosmic thought they don't even realize it because it's been so long since they've heard uh, anybody teach any level of Bible doctrine anywhere around them. So Israel is in reversionism. And what uh, the, the point of the author here is it has screwed up your thinking so much and your ability to perform so much, because that's always the result of sin in the life. When we get involved in reversionism and we get away from the Lord, then we start losing objectivity We start operating on subjective impressions and emotions, and we no longer make good decisions from a position of strength, and we start making bad decisions from the position of weakness, which is the sin nature. And whenever we come under outside pressure, whether it's the outside military pressure Israel was going through, or any sort of outside pressure we might be going through, either from a job, career, uh, personal problems, health problems, financial problems, Whatever it might be, when we go through those, instead of handling it with the problem-solving devices and the stress busters, then what we do is we are converting that outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul. And we have studied how stress destroys our ability to think. And before long, our, our thinking, our cognitive abilities just begin to shut down. We can't analyze the problem correctly because we can't see it objectively anymore. We're no longer using doctrine. And so one bad decision builds upon another bad decision, and the cumulative effect is self-destructive. And that is exactly where Israel is. And so the writer here is pointing out that 
that Ehud may be absolutely horrible and degenerate, and he's an old fat slob, and he can't really do anything, and he's not very effective, but he was effective enough to, to defeat you militarily and to rule you for 18 years. So he does this, we're told in verse um, 13, he does this in a coalition. He gathers to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek. So these are two other tribal groups. Now, there is a relationship between Moab and Ammon. They are cousins, and they are both descendants of Lot, and we will see that in just a minute. And Amalek is a more distant cousin. But what I pointed out last time when we looked at the first uh, series of, of, uh, of discipline under Kushan Rishathaim is that through all of these cycles... God, there's always a coalition of external enemies, that is, enemies outside the land that are against Israel, but they always involve the same people, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. It's just at different times there's a different power that has moved into uh, the position of authority within that coalition against Israel. And these are the same people that are against Israel today. We'll go back and review our genealogy of the Arabs. Where did the Arabs come from? Because to understand the modern Arab-Israeli conflict, you have to understand that it has its roots in the Bible, and it's basically a family feud. After the great flood, five generations of Noah, down to Peleg. Peleg had a son, Yoktan, and Yoktan is the father of 13 Arab tribes that came to live and dominate the Arabian Peninsula, what we call Saudi Arabia. Then he had a son, Nahor, who is the father of the Chaldeans, and Nahor lived down in Ur of the Chaldees. He had a son, Terah, who had a son, Abraham. Had three sons, actually, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Abraham had a, a son by a handmaiden, an Egyptian handmaiden, um, named Hagar, and Ishmael became the father of the Bedouin Arabs. Uh, Abraham's promised seed was Isaac, and then Abraham had a second wife, Keturah, and he had six sons from Keturah, one of whom was Midian, who is the father of the Midianites. Now, Nahor, who was Abraham's brother, had a son, Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. One night, Lot got drunk, and his two daughters had incestuous relations with him, and the result of that incestuous relation was two sons, Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab are the uh, progenitors of the Ammonites and the Moabites. So we can see that they are uh, second cousins to the Jews who descend through Isaac, through Jacob. And uh, Isaac had a, uh, another son, a twin of Jacob, Esau, who's the father of the Edomites. And it is from Esau that Amalek was born, the father of the Amalekites. So you can see that it's just... Uh, a family feud that's going on here, and it is all related to the spiritual issues outlined in the Abrahamic covenant. And God has promised that his seed would go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jews are descended from Abraham, and it is through the Jews that God will bless all nations. That ultimately was fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died there as a penalty for the sins of the world. And because of the uh, family feud going back into the ancient times, this was fueled by Satan who was using these cousins and these family, other families to attack Israel in order to try to prevent the Lord's plan of salvation from coming to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he is still using all of these Arab tribes today, all the Palestinian conflict we see today and the trouble. See, Ammon is, uh, now it is, uh, that same word is found in, in the name of the capital, Amman, for Jordan. And it is Jordan, where, which is the uh, modern state for ancient Ammon and Moab. And all of this is still Satan's ploy to try to destroy the Jews because God has promised the Jews that they would possess the entire land, something they've never possessed, and that he has a plan for their future. So if Satan can somehow block that, he thinks he will have victory in his war against God. But God is not going to allow Satan to have that victory. Now, Moab, this is a uh, map on the overhead of the modern state. This is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is located here in this vicinity, and uh, ancient Jericho is located right here where you see the arrow, and this is only about 12 miles from the Dead Sea and only about 10 miles from the crossing of the Jordan, so it's just barely inside the uh, uh, Israel proper on the, on the West Bank. God is carrying out this discipline when it says that God strengthens them and, and he gathers Ammon and you have this coalition of Ammon, Amalek, and Moab that they go and defeat Israel and they possess the city of the Palms, which is Jericho. This is fulfillment of God's discipline warning of five cycles of discipline on his covenant nation Israel given in Leviticus 26. We'll just look at the first part on the overhead. Leviticus 26.14 says, If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, this is the Mosaic covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever, so there would be health problems, consumption and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. So that's that that uh, stage of soul poverty in reversionism, that God would answer the prayer but send leanness to the soul, cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. And this is what's happening here, that they will have production, manufacturing, and they will have agricultural production, but it would be taken by their enemies. No matter how hard they work, the fruit of the fields would be absorbed by the enemies. And that's what was taking place here with... Um, with Moab. You see, if we look at the map, what was happening here is that at the fords of the Jordan down in this vicinity is where cattle and other crops and your, were, were moved from the Transjordan tribes of, of Reuben and Gad into the central part of Israel. So this was a major area for the movement of goods back and forth and trade goods and part of the caravan route. And what happened is that uh, when uh, Eglon moved in and set up his uh, summer palace and headquarters in uh, Jericho, then he would uh, control the fords of the Jordan and exact an enormous tribute or tax. You know, this is one of the first, I guess, uh, toll roads in history. And I've noticed that since I've moved up here to the northeast that uh, there are about a thousand times more toll roads than there are out west. And someday I'd be fascinated to know why it is that with the excessive population of the north, they're incapable of... Uh, building highways like they do out west, west without having to impose all these tolls on them, especially since taxes in the east are about ten times higher than they are in the west. Just one of those odd little inequity, inequities. You just wonder what, what cultural factors cause that. Obviously, it's not 
uh, spiritually based, and, and any time there's excessive taxation, it's just part of divine discipline and reversionism in a culture. But that's another story, just a little observation on where we're going as a whole in our culture. I always get a little chuckle from those in the congregation that are from other parts of the country when I those comments. Anyway, they're operating down here on the on the uh, fords of the Jordan, and he's exacting this tribute that is paid on either a quarterly or annual basis in order to let the uh, caravans go through and move the troops. And that's just a fulfillment of the promise of uh, divine discipline there in Leviticus 26, uh, 16. You shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. And I will set my face against you. So God becomes the enemy of the nation, even though that he is the suzerain who has entered into a special covenant with them. He is going to become an enemy to them because of their rebelliousness and their infidelity to him. I will set my face against you. This is reminiscent of the statement in the New Testament that God hates the arrogant and God makes war against the arrogant. But God gives grace to the humble. So when we allow ourselves to go into carnality, we're always operating on arrogance. And when we operate on arrogance, God is going to set himself against us. If you are a believer and you are a child of God, then God is going to bring divine discipline into your life that may be absolutely horrendous in order to get your attention and focus you back on the right priorities of Bible doctrine first and obedience to God second. So God says, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. There will be military defeat. Notice the cause of military defeat is not bad military budgeting. It is not the fact that they don't have a stockpile of weapons. All of these are other factors. The reason is a spiritual reason. And the application we're seeing again and again is the reason there are cultural problems, the reason they lose freedom, the reason they are defeated militarily, the reason they have economic collapse, has nothing to do with the policies in force. It has everything to do with their rejection of God. The policies that any nation adopts politically ultimately reflect an underlying spiritual reality. And when that underlying spiritual reality is a rejection of God and Bible doctrine, then the consequence is that nation that has enslaved themselves in their soul is going to be enslaved politically and economically as a result of their policies. Because when you're not thinking on the basis of doctrine, you're thinking on the basis of paganism, and pagan thought always leads to subservience and defeat. And so that is exactly what happens here. The ultimate problem is not political, and the ultimate solution is not political. And when people run around today thinking somehow that they're going to solve our problems through politics, and if we just get the right party into power and the right person in the presidency, that we're going to solve all our problems, well, you're mistaken, because that's not the problem. The problem is the people, and the people have rejected God and rejected doctrine. See, all that we're going to get when we have this election next month is we're going to either get one man who is going to hasten the decline or we will get the other man who won't stop it or slow it down. It's sort of a case of bad or worse, but it's not a case of good because that's not the problem and that's not the solution. That's not to say don't vote. You didn't hear that. It is just to say don't put your hopes on that or get crushed when your 
uh, the person you think is going to solve the problems doesn't make it because that's not the problem. But we do need to get out and vote, and we need to uh, make sure that the right man gets in office. Leviticus 26.17, I will set my face against you so you'll be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. That's emotionalism. You're afraid all the time, so you're running away from shadows. So you see, Israel's culture at this time, because they have gotten involved with paganism, is really no different from the kind of culture and problems that we face today. Now in verse 13 we read that they came across the Jordan, they possessed the city of the palm trees, which is just another term for Jericho. Now apparently um, the Jews had started to rebuild Jericho, at least because there was an oasis there. Jericho is eight miles northwest of the Jordan River. It's 800 feet below sea level, and there is a gorgeous oasis there which provided water and sustenance for the area. And apparently, uh, Eglon established a temporary palace there where he would go for a while, and uh, the area was covered with date palms and, and uh, banana trees, balsams, sycamores, henna. It was a very productive area, very beautiful area, and he would go there in order to relax. This city was not rebuilt for many, many years until 850 B.C., which is about 400 more years under the reign of King Ahab. When Joshua, if you remember, when Joshua defeated Jericho, he put a curse on the Israelite who rebuilt the city. And that is not fulfilled until sometime later when Heel attempts to uh, uh, fortify the city in 850 B.C. Uh, Eglon isn't a Jew, so the curse doesn't apply to him. And so he refortifies the city and establishes at least some sort of a temporary residence there, sort of a Camp David type of thing, I think. Judges 3.14, we read, And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, here we run into one of our favorite words that I've studied a lot, uh, avad. It's the cow imperfect of avad, which means to work, to serve, to be enslaved to, and it also means to worship in certain contexts. And the writer continually uses this with various meanings because they move from serving God and worshiping God to serving and worshiping the false gods, and whenever they serve and worship the false gods, that leads to political and economic slavery. And he uses the same word in order to tie the three events together, failure to serve God, leads to serving other gods. Whenever you reject God, something else always moves into the vacuum, and then you become enslaved to that and to other forces and other factors. Because they served the king of Moab, it took 18 years this time for the message to get through that this is really a bad situation, and finally they cry out to the Lord. Judges 3.15, when the sons of Israel cried, Za'ak, which does not imply any kind of real confession. Just It may simply be nothing more than, Lord, I'm miserable, help. There may be no recognition of sin at all. It is only used one time in Judges where, they, where it gives content to the cry, and that's in Judges 10.10 where they do cry to the Lord and say, we have uh, sinned by serving the Baals and the Asherah. But they can simply be like many believers who after going through a certain amount of divine discipline say, Lord, deliver me. And the Lord in grace still uh, gives them a little grace and a little blessing in order to give them a little opportunity to turn back to Him and to uh, uh, confess their sins and get with the program spiritually. So the Lord uh, answers their, their cry, and He raises up a deliverer 
for them. And the word for deliverer comes from the root word. It's a participle that comes from the root word, yasha, which means to save or deliver, and is the same root for the name of our Savior, Jesus. It is Yeshua in the Hebrew from the noun and verb yasha, which means to deliver or to save. And the principle here is that only God can deliver us from the consequences of our sin. So he provides a man named Ehud. Now, Ehud is a fascinating individual. He shows a lot of fine character qualities, but I'm not sure that he shows any spiritual qualities. There is a marked absence of spiritual references to Ehud. After this point, you don't hear about God anymore, except once when Ehud invokes his name at the very end when he tells the uh, armies of Israel after he's assassinated uh, Eglon, he says, go and attack them because God has given them into our hand. But other than that, there's no mention of the Lord. He's completely absent from the text, and the silence is deafening. And when the writer leaves God out in a context like this, he's saying something uh, about the, the individual. Apparently, Ehud had military capability. He was a good planner. He was crafty, but he was not necessarily had a good relationship with the Lord, unlike unlike. Uh, Othniel, in verse 10 of, of earlier, the Spirit of the Lord does not come upon him. And it's interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, when there is a list of judges that are listed, in the, uh, listed because of their faith and trust in God, Ehud is conspicuously absent. So it seems that Ehud is not listed here because he has great spiritual ability. You see, God can raise up many different people in order to provide deliverance. We might even say that God raised up a Dwight Eisenhower in order to lead the Allied troops to victory during World War II. That does not mean that he is necessarily given any special spiritual ability by God, but that God simply raised up an individual who had that ability to bring victory. We could say that God raised up a Norman Schwarzkopf to provide victory in the Gulf War, but that is not saying anything about their spiritual quality or their spiritual capability. It's simply saying that that's the man that God prepared and put in that place in order to perform the job, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily even a believer. It can just mean that God has prepared a certain individual in order to uh, bring about his plan. So there's no indication here that Ehud has any real spiritual relationship with the Lord. He is called Ehud, the son of Gera. The Benjamite. Now, Benjamite, the word plays here again are, are phenomenal. Benjamin, the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. Benjamin, son of my right hand. So what we have here is Ehud is, is the son of my right hand, a left-handed man. What's going on here? As soon as you see something like that in the text, you have to say, wait a minute, what, what's the Holy Spirit trying to emphasize here? He's a left-handed man. This is, this is something unique, and there's a lot of uh, people who write on this that, well, you know, finally the lefties get their... Uh, their day in court here, and they have a hero. And I've heard all kinds of things. But the point that the writer is making here, especially when you compare it to other passages like uh, uh, later on in uh, uh, Judges, uh, Judges chapter 20, verse 16, also in comparison with um, a phrase in First uh, Chronicles 12, 2, where we have this same phrase, uh, a left-handed man, in the Hebrew, it's Eter Yad Yamino, and it literally means shut up to the right hand. Now, in Judges chapter 20, there's an entire unit of Benjamite warriors who are said to be left-handed. 
Were they all born that way? Is there some sort of genetic preponderance? That's what some people say. Well, you know, this was just sort of a genetic tendency among Benjamites and shows that they all come from the same tribe. And uh, But it's more than that. This phrase isn't the same phrase used in 1 Chronicles 12.2 for being left-handed. There's a different phrase. This one literally means bound in the right hand. And the best explanation of this is the Benjamites had prepared a special unit of warriors. And these warriors had been trained. They had bound up their right hands so that they learned how to use their slings and their javelins with their left hands so that they were ambidextrous. And the purpose for that is that in combat, the enemy soldiers were all trained to fight with other right-handed soldiers. If they came up against a whole uh, company of left-handed warriors, they would be undone because when you're fighting with a sword and a shield and you're trained to uh, strike with the sword with your right hand and hit the shield that's held in the left hand of the opposing person, and all of a sudden he's got a sword in that hand instead of a shield, you're, you're, you're bum-fuzzled for a minute. You're confused. You don't know how to handle it. And so the Benjamites had apparently put together an elite group of soldiers who had uh, trained themselves to be ambidextrous. And Ehud was one of those soldiers. So he has a military background. He has been trained to use certain weapons. And he is a very thoughtful individual and a good planner because of the way he carries out his episode of deliverance. Judges 3.16, he also has a certain ability with, uh, with uh, developing weapons. He made for himself a sword, a double-edged sword, a cubit in length, which, which means with the uh, Hebrew cubit it was about 14 to 16 inches long, a little larger than a good bowie knife. Uh, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. So when he was searched, they would expect the, because they had sort of a cross draw, he would be searched on his left thigh, not his right thigh, and he can get in past the guards close to the king, and even if he makes a move with his left hand, nobody's going to think that it is a threatening move. He has uh, to make his own weapon. Now, this is another indication of what has taken place during this period. The uh, Philistines and these other nations have prevented Israel from having blacksmiths in the land. We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's an early form of gun control, early form of arms control, and the way they kept Israel in a subservient position and in a position where they could be defeated is to keep them from having the latest technology for weapons. And so it's interesting that people like Ehud and we'll see Shamgar have to make their own weapons. Ehud makes makes his own sword, Shamgar defeats the Philistines with an ox goad. They use very primitive type weapons. All of this is because of uh, policies of arms control that have been imposed upon them by these uh, external uh, enemies. He comes to Eglon. He brings the tribute. He's in charge of the caravan, and he presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And then we have a little parenthetical observation here to remind us that Fatty was an extremely fat man. So Lefty now comes to see Fatty in the throne room. Now, after, after Lefty leaves in Judges 3.18, it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. So he had, they've left Jericho in their caravan. They've made it about five miles out to Gilgal, which has important significance for a Jew. It was at Gilgal that after the nation came into the land under Joshua, defeated the Canaanites at Jericho and at Ai and in the south, they gathered together 
and reaffirmed the covenant with God at Gilgal. But what's happened now to Gilgal, this tremendous shrine in ancient Israel to their unique relationship with God? There are now idols there, which shows the complete reversionism of the nation that they still haven't turned away from their idols. They're still practicing that, even though they've cried out for deliverance. So he turns back at the idols at Gilgal, and he sends everybody else on. He comes back to the king, and he says, I've got a secret message for you, O king. And this implies some sort of secret prophecy from God. Just like so many people in power, they want to know what God has to say to them, and they'll go to astrologers, and, and they'll go to uh, tarot card readers, and all kinds of soothsayers in order to find out what the future might hold. Uh, Eglon is, is extremely gullible, and he, he's going to... Uh, let Ehud come in and give him a secret word from God. So apparently Ehud has studied his uh, opponent and realizes that he has religious superstitions, and so he's going to use that against him. So he comes in, and uh, Ehud says, I mean, Eglon says, keep silent, sends out all of his attendants, all of his bodyguards, all of his servants, and he lets... uh, Ehud get close to him. Verse 20, And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, the cool roof chamber, there's a lot of debate as to what that means because it's a, it's a Hebrew word that is a, uh, it's a, it's a hopox. It's only used one time, and we're not sure exactly what this means, whether it is uh, uh, outside or there's some indication from uh, looking at cognate languages that it could just be the upper throne room. But in any case, it is a private room where there is only Ehud and Eglon. And Ehud came to him, in verse 20, while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message for God from you. And he arose from his seat. Verse 21, and Ehud stretched out his left hand. Now, this isn't a suspicious action. He stretches out his left hand, reaches under his robe, grabs the sword that's strapped to his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. So apparently there's no hilt on the, uh, on, on the dagger, and he just rams this thing, just shoves it right up into his, all the folds of fat that just wrap around it and encompass it, and it's, the sword is swallowed up into his intestines. The fat closed over the blade. Very graphic. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Such a nice way of putting it. King James says, and the dirt came out. What happens when you die is your bowels immediately evacuate. That means everything comes out. Now, there's great humor here because what the, what the writer wants you to understand and wants the, wants, wants the Jews to understand is this, this fat man who's been oppressing us for 18 years who you've been so afraid of, well, there's nothing left of him but just a pile of refuse, just a pile of feces. So Ehud now is very crafty. It says, verse 23, Ehud went out into the vestibule. Now, we don't know what that is either, but, but in light of all the discussion here that, that the slaves are outside and they think later on they, they, they don't know what happened, they're going to think he's, they, that he's in the head for you Navy guys, uh, that he went to the uh, restroom. Uh, they won't come into to the room. So Ehud goes out into the vestibule, and there's some indication that this word, hamisterona, is not really a vestibule, but some architectural feature probably related to the latrine, privy, or the head. And so what he does is that this is a private part of the uh, throne room, 
and he locks the doors from the inside and then either escapes through some, uh, some door inside the chamber, some other exit, or he goes on the roof and, and goes over the outside wall. But whatever the case, if he manages to get out without anybody seeing him and he locks the doors from the inside. So when he had gone out, his servants came and looked. They knock on the door and they wait for the king to call him in. Behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked and they said he's only relieving himself in the cool room. Now that's not what it says in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, you do have a euphemism. It says that, that he was covering his feet. You know, when you drop your drawers, they land on top of your feet. And so that was the euphemism for going to the bathroom and relieving yourself. You, you, you covered your feet. So what they actually said was he's in there covering his feet, so let's not bother him. Of course, you see, the guy has evacuated all of his bowels, so, so there's this rich odor that's permeating the, the outer throne area, so they think that's what's going on here. So you just have to live inside the text for a while and understand all the humor. So they wait outside, and they wait, and they wait, until they become anxious, and that's not what the Hebrew says either. It says they waited until they were embarrassed. They've just been out there for so long waiting for this guy. They're just embarrassed. Man, this guy is really taking his time in the can. So finally, they bust down, the, they get the key, and they open it up, and they go in, and the master, they find him dead on the floor. Well, that's allowed Ehud time to escape in verse 26. So Ehud escapes while they're delaying, and he passes out of the idols and goes to Sirah, and there he blows the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. So if you look at the map here, he heads out from Jericho and heads up into this air, central area highlands here, blows the trumpet, and he basically, what the text says is, uh, again, a little bit of a mistranslation, pursue them. He really says, charge. And off they go. He gathers the... the uh, forces that are up in this area, and they come down, and they bypass the troops of Jericho, an excellent military maneuver, and they seize the, uh, the fords of Jericho, and that way they've trapped them inside the land, and they're able to take the uh, Moabite army apart piece by piece. He said to them, pursue them, that is, charge, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So this is a more in-depth picture. They've been up in the area of Jericho, which is right here. And they just come down here and seize the fords. And then when the Moabites try to get across, they set up an ambush and they wipe out 10,000 of them. The result, verse 30, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. As a result of military victory, they now have freedom in order to pursue day-to-day -day life and two more generations will go by before they forget God and abandon Him and go into another cycle of discipline. Now, the point of application for us is to remember that we're in the same position Israel is. When we compromise with the enemies within, the sin nature, then that makes us susceptible to all of the ideologies and religions and philosophies and the rationalizations of the pagan culture surrounding us. And once we allow ourselves to operate on the sin nature under the power of the sin nature, then we become slaves to the sin nature according to Romans chapter 6. Once we become slaves of the sin nature, then we will become enslaved to the external 
ideas and forces and thoughts of the cosmic system. That leads to an enslavement of our soul that is only broken by turning back to God. We have to use, begin with 1 John 1, 9, no matter how bad we've messed up, no matter how great the failure, no matter how, how heinous the sin, God will forgive us. Christ penalty. There's no sin too great for the grace of God. That's great optimism because it means we can still recover if we're still alive. And then we can continue to learn doctrine, begin to apply it to the problems and all the horrible situations we've created for ourselves, and then we can advance forward in peace and stability just as Israel did. But the issues in life, we must realize, are ultimately spiritual. They're ultimately spiritual. Everything else is a symptom of our spiritual condition. Well, we're out of time, so we better close in prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged with the fact that that all issues in life ultimately derive from our relationship with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their relationship with you, unsure of their eternal salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Scripture says all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ, who is the eternal second person of the Trinity, entered into human history through the Incarnation, and he is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever, and he went to the cross to die as a substitute for your sins. If you trust him and him alone for your salvation, then the Word of God promises that you have instantly eternal life which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray for those of us who are saved that we would be challenged with the importance of the priority of doctrine, not to leave you, not to be diverted from keeping you and Bible doctrine as our number one priority, but that we might be challenged with the need to make this the highest priority, make this with intensity, that we might continue to pursue our relationship with you to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.